Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Oust. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Doing very well. I'm actually really excited. The first thing I want to announce is that this is the 50th episode of this podcast. Congratulations. (laughs) And I'm so glad that you have been with me since the very beginning, episode two, I think it was, that you joined me. And here you are with me on episode 50. So it has been nearly a year that I have been doing this. And let me tell you, it's gone very fast. And it has been a whole load of fun and I intend to keep going for the foreseeable future. That's great. (laughs) Now, if anybody is just tuning in for the first time, this episode with me and Rena is a little bit different to my usual episodes. If you've already had a listen to episodes 46 and 48, you will know what I mean. Every two weeks or so, Rena and I are offering our listeners an insider's look behind the scenes at the workings of strata law and strata management. We're having a chat about the week's wins and frustrations, just as Rena and I would normally do over coffee or on the phone. And we want to share this side of our work with you because we think that you, our listeners who I know are strata managers, lot owners, committee members, we think there is a whole load of value in you joining in on these conversations and benefiting from Rena and my combined experience, perhaps even learning from our mistakes and learning what not to do when we talk about the trouble that we've had. So thank you very much for joining us. This is one of those episodes. Rena, do you want to jump in and add anything in there? No, it's been a pleasure, Amanda, to be doing this. I think that people will learn a lot from our experiences. I think that the day-to-day runnings and sort of little bits and pieces of different events that happen in strata schemes provide some insight for those that have experienced something similar or Mm. have a similar problem in their building. Yeah. And that's a good reminder actually to send us in your, not only your comments, if you like this format, how can we do it differently or improve and any questions, topics that you want us to discuss, specific things that you're going through at the moment that you think Arena or myself might be able to help you with. So you can shoot those straight through to me, amanda at yourstrataproperty.com.au or just post a comment or a question in the comments section under this episode on the website, yourstrataproperty.com.au slash podcasts. So, Rena, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been pretty good, actually, so far, as I said, Amanda. Things are obviously heating up and for me at the moment in terms of new buildings and yep. doing lots of proposals. So, yeah, it's been quite awesome. busy. Good on you. I've actually had a recent trip to Melbourne to attend the multi-owned properties forum which Deakin University runs Nicole Johnston at Deakin University and I'll have a few things to report about that in one of our upcoming episodes so that's how I've spent my week and it was a whole load of fun right okay so Rena do you want to start what has been frustrating you this week in the in the world of strata so I was approached by a former client who's in a different building and they have a problem with a BMC member that's it's a six slot BMC and unfortunately this representative from one of the strata plans is highly provocative he swears at meetings he's oh. disruptive and it's been really hard for the 
BMC, which is a building management committee for those that don't know what that means. If you look at the new developments that we have, shopping centres and buildings, you know, side by side that may share common facilities at mm. a BMC is, is a vehicle used to allow those to, to function. Yep. And they provided me with a copy of their strata management statement to see if there was anything that we could do in regards to being able to curtail this person's behaviour or at least go back to the strata plan where he has been appointed and see what we can do in that regard. Mm. But unfortunately, the SMS, which is a strata management statement, which governs how the, the BMC is run, is silent about in relation to the behaviour of a member. Mm. And we are aware because of the through correspondence that I received from a member that basically in this BMC, this particular person is the chairperson of the strata plan and he's basically applauded for his conduct because he's seen to be championing their rights. And mm-hmm. um, and unfortunately, in this particular BMC, there's a commercial um, entity within the stratum lot. And of course, as we know from experience, there's always friction between residential <laughs> Not always, but there tends Often, to be yeah. friction between residential and commercial interests. So mm. that's been my frustration that, in a sense, someone has said, oh, why don't you introduce a code of conduct? But that's not really binding. I mean, it's nice to have mm. it, but I don't think it's not an instrument that we can use to enforce or change behaviour. Mm. And this person is swearing at meetings, generally intimidating others, yes. being a yes. bit of a bully. Yeah. The other members, how many other members of the BMC in terms of reps? So actual people are there that are part of the, that are reps oh, on the committee? Yeah, it's a six-member BMC, so okay. the other five members, yeah. Okay. And none of them are willing to say, hey, mate, pull your head in? Oh, they do, but I mean, they But nothing have. changes? No, and this is why they've come to seek my advice because someone like this who acts in such a yeah disruptive, intimidating and, and mm. disruptive way doesn't really care what other people think and unfortunately their strata managing agent has tried as well. So in a sense, I'm just trying to second opinion, but unfortunately mm. we've all come up with the same answer. The thing to note that in the Strata Schemes Management Act, Section 35E allows an owner's corporation to remove a strata committee member by special resolution, but unfortunately there's nothing mm. that's equivalent in the um, in strata management statements or in the Development Act that allows a member to be removed yeah, um, yep. and there's so. the, his strata scheme. You think is going to continue to elect him as a BMC rep because they think he's awesome, and he's yep. going to continue to annoy everyone. Yeah. What does it take to amend the SMS to include requirements relating to behaviour? Um, Do you know? Well, I think yeah. I haven't had a look at that yet. I think it depends on what parts we're changing. Some are unanimous. Yeah. Some are special, and some, if they're to do with shared facilities, depend on the, the yes. percentage contribution, but. I think it was I think it was unanimous to change it unless it was relating to the shared facilities then it would be based on their contribution and the vote would be by by majority where it'd be yeah percentage contribution to that shared facility so Yeah see this highlights the difficulties with amending strata management statements it's something that um, I spoke about when Chris Duggan came on the show uh, they're very hard to change because, as you said, mm. you often need unanimous resolutions, whereas for strata bylaws, you need a special resolution. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be my first port of call to have a look at the strata management statement and see if you could mm. propose a new clause to be inserted which relates to the conduct of BMC members, committee members, and where they don't meet a code of conduct and you'd establish a separate code of conduct which would be linked to that 
that clause in the SMS, then there are ramifications. So, for example, there can be a motion put for them to be removed from the committee. Yeah. In my experience, dealing with bullies and, and people who like to intimidate and get some sense of satisfaction from abusing their apparent position of power, if it is made difficult for them to conduct themselves in that way, so every time they disrupt a meeting, use bad language, are abusive or intimidating, then those five other members who are there say, mate, this is not on, this is not how our committee functions, that is not appropriate or acceptable behaviour and you're going to be asked to leave the meeting if that's how you want to conduct yourself because we feel harassed and intimidated and we don't feel that we can continue to carry on this meeting in a productive way if that's how you're going to behave. So you'll either behave or you'll leave the meeting. If that happens enough times, isn't this person going to get fed up with having to toe the line, so to speak, constantly being pulled up by the other committee members, aren't they eventually going to say, well, this is no fun anymore, I'm not going to stand for the committee next year? Well, I think um, two of the meetings that I was aware of that I was told about that someone did that, and I think the um, the managing agent you know, tried in his, in his capacity as the chairperson of the meeting to, to do that, mm. but it, as we know, in terms of human nature, people don't like confrontation. Yes, and right. um, unfortunately, you know, the meetings when there's shouting and people have done that, then he sort of does become a bit quiet. But then, it's always a very strange situation, and I think something will have to be done about it long term because, again, people don't want to come to meetings mm. when he acts like that. A lot mm. of most people, you know, are doing this on a voluntary basis, and they probably think, well, why do I need to put up with this type of behaviour? I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting paid for this, so. Yep. yep. So, yeah, I think we just need to sort of um, look at that one and see how it progresses and whether or not there are any other legal means of being able to um, perhaps remove him from the BMC. Yeah. I know when dealing with these types of people, it often gets worse before it gets better. That's what I advise committees when I'm assisting them. And it does take a group of people, preferably more than one, who are willing to stand yes. their ground, who are willing to have that kind of confrontation for what can be an extended period of time to send the message home. And I'm not at all saying that it's easy, but it is definitely effective. And in the strata context, I mean, there's lots of things that you can be doing, as you said, in terms of removing that person from a strata committee by special resolution, calling on breaches of bylaws and things like that. And that process is there but it's usually not the legal process that brings no. these things to a head. It's usually those practical steps, those consistent steps towards asserting your own rights as a human being, not only as a committee member, to be respected, to be listened mm. to. And these people eventually get sick of that and they think, well, I can't sit here and abuse these five other people anymore because, wow, all of a sudden they won't stand for it. I've got better things to do. I've got other people to bully. And they move on. But it doesn't happen quickly. And at least no. uh, from my point of view, there isn't a an easy legal answer. No, not in this case. I think um, there is a provision in the strata management statement to allow meetings to be held in writing. So I think mm. where possible, where things can be decided just in writing by yes or no vote, then that's what I suggested be an alternative to having face-to-face meetings, especially if there are quotes that they can all meet and discuss and agree on or any other type of yes and no type motions and they're they're probably best held 
and not, not it in writing rather than a face-to-face meeting. Yeah, so that's a really advise. good, a yeah. really good practical solution. Yeah. Okay. Well, let us know how you go with that one. If you have yeah. any updates. Hopefully we have a happy end to that story. So my frustration this week, and it's more so my client's frustration, but it's something I want to talk about for our listeners because I'm sure they've been in a similar situation. This is a building where an extended period of works has been carried out by a contractor. It's sort of like a, a balcony refurbishment. So this building spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time getting their balconies done. The project is just about finished and the final payment is due to the contractor. Now, one of the lot owners who's on the ground floor has said that some of his properties, his not only his personal property, some statues and things that he had on his terrace, but part of his lot property, so within his terrace, has been damaged by the work that the contractors have done. They've dropped things down below and things like that. And he wants to claim against the contractor for that damage. He's in the process of getting some quotes together, but it's looking like it might be in the vicinity of about $10,000 worth of damage, he says. And he says that the owner's corporation should hold back part of the last payment on account of that damage to his property. Now, the owner's corporation is mindful that it has an obligation to the contractor under the contract that they have together to pay that contractor the final payment. But at the same time, this lot owner is complaining that there's been damage to his property and he says he's entitled to be reimbursed. And I know that this owner's corporation in particular has a particular view of the claim. They think that the lot owner is trying it on a bit and that the claim is sort of pumped up and they're not that interested in pursuing the claim. They like the work that the contractor has done And they've come to me saying, look, what are our obligations in this situation? Should we be paying the contractor his final payment? Should we be paying any attention to what this lot owner is claiming? What do we do? So have you ever been in that kind of a situation, Rena? Yeah, I have actually. And and normally what I've sort of recommended is that the the committee actually approach the owner and just to see what the ledger damage has been Mm. and whether or not it's just worth putting it through as a claim to start off with, with the contractor. Mm. It, yeah, it could be a spurious claim. It, it's really hard to know, but the damage could be real as well. So I think there's got to be sort of both sides of the um, the argument have to be taken into consideration. Yeah. And I, and I think in my experience normally, you know, if, if the contractor wants to keep sort of in with the owner's corporation and do future work, they might just pay mm. part of 50%, meet the person halfway, Maybe the owners' corporation might contribute some amount. It just depends on the damage caused to the lot owner's personal property and and the relationship that the contractor has with them, whether they want to keep it in future or mm. sort of damage. Just sometimes little things can cause big problems, as you and yeah. I know in our experience. So it just depends. I think whether you want to be penny wise, pound foolish, or you yep. think, oh well. So what was the quantum of the amount? Well, it's looking like it might be about ten thousand dollars, but the oh. lot owner hasn't put in all of his quotes yet. And I've certainly taken the same view as you. Look, let's put it to the contractor. You might find this has been a big job. The owner's corporation has so far been happy with them. And as some form of compromise without admitting any liability, the contractor Mm. might be willing to put some money on the table. And even if it's not the full amount that the lot owner is claiming, it might be enough for the lot owner to be satisfied at the end of the day. So that's definitely going to be their first step. But something I wanted to highlight to them is the fact that the owner's corporation is the one that has the contract with the builder. The lot owner is simply a, a part of the owner's corporation. And if 
the Owners Corporation determined that it wanted to comply with its contractual obligations and make that last payment to the contractor, that would be fine, but it doesn't stop the lot owner later coming back and saying to the Owners Corporation, well, I have a claim against you, Owners Corporation, because your contractor has damaged my lot property. So what are you, Owners Corporation, going to do about it? So as much as they want to settle that account and move on, I've been very careful to advise them that at the end of the day, their obligation may lie to the lot owner to fix that damage to property. And if they've paid out the contractor and the contractor's moved on, it may be difficult to later go back and try Mm. to claim that back from the contractor. So it's probably a good idea that it all gets resolved now as smoothly as possible. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me know how that one goes (laughs) too, Amanda. Will do. So moving on from the frustrations, any wins this week, Rena? What's the good news? Um, Well, this actually was a win that I found out about earlier this year. It was actually a scheme I used to manage and the committee members forwarded me a copy of the actual adjudication results. So what had happened was two years ago, an owner decided um, that he wanted to install a gas line to his property. Now, that property is actually a separate part. It's not part of the main building. It's a, quite a unique situation for this scheme where it's actually an old sort of heritage house on the same land occupied by the owner's corporation. And apparently he said that, oh, he had a meeting with the secretary at the time. And the secretary said, oh, yeah, go ahead, mate, just install it. <laughs> so sometime later, that was never sort of mentioned in any meeting, he went ahead and installed it. Of course, you know, it's all over common property. It's going through the garage up, up the side of the building. It's quite ugly looking. It's also a gas line, so it's quite dangerous if it mm. hasn't been installed properly. So at the time, we wrote to him and we said he had no consent to do this. He needs to provide us with evidence that it's been installed safely in the meantime, but that we required him, you know, to remove it. And of course, we knew that wasn't going to happen because the type of person that he was and the fact that he had claimed continuously that he had been given approval by this committee member, which was verbal. Mm. We said, if you look at all the minutes, this is a building over 100 lots, you know, you can see every application and there's normally at least half a dozen applications for renovations and other things always on the agenda. So, you know, I don't believe that he didn't know that he needed to have a formal application. In this case, the committee couldn't have approved it anyway. There was no renovations bylaw Mm -hmm. to allow such an installation. Anyway, to try and calm things down, the committee suggested that he get a bylaw drafted mm-hmm. and he'd call for an EG- and they would call for an EGM on his behalf and we provided him with an estimate of costs for that meeting in terms of our time as managing agents and disbursements, et cetera, which he agreed to pay. Mm. So then the EGM is held and unfortunately the motion is defeated mm. and he becomes quite angry at that, that he'd gone to the expense of calling the meeting and that he had followed the committee's advice by submitting a bylaw, which obviously he had gone to expense mm. to undertake. Part of the issue was I think that some of the committee members had spoken against the bylaw as well. But then again, you know, as you know, it's 25% of those eligible and entitled to vote at the meeting that needs to actually vote against, or more than 25% for a special resolution. Mm. And mm. unfortunately, um, he didn't, the bylaw was defeated, and then he took the application to NCAD to state that the Owners Corporation had unreasonably withheld consent. Mm-hmm. So have you ever come across any of those types of cases, Amanda? Yeah, yeah, I have. And I'm very interested to see what the result of this one was because we yeah. get widely varying well, results yeah, on these. Yeah, well, NCAD actually re- denied the application and said wow. that basically the Owners Corporation had the right to refuse 
to allow him to install a gas line, mm. which see affected common property. And, yeah, and so we were quite pleased with the results. We had obviously lots of minutes, lots of letters that we had to back up the fact that we had written to him, asking him and to mm. remove it, that it was unauthorised. And that it was dangerous, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, was a, that would have been a big point. I mean, he gave us a certificate from a plumber, but I don't know, mm. you know, in terms of how satisfactory that was after the event. Mm. And you could just see it going along the car park line and, you know, mm. and so it's just, it was unsightly and, in a sense, you know, today you would never have a gas line going through a car park where you could see it on, on the ground. Yeah, I don't yeah. think that's... That's a great result. And I have to say, in my experience, it is an unusual one that where the work has already been done, that I usually find that NCAT errs on the side of permitting the installation to remain in place because it's already there. Yeah, that's been my experience. So we were actually quite surprised that, and obviously the committee was quite pleased with the result, but yeah, it's been unusual. They normally err on the side of caution. They do say that consent has been unreasonably withheld and that it doesn't affect anyone. So in this case, it was... Um, the contrary had occurred, so yeah. that was unusual. And did you get a direct order? It was an order for him to remove it. No. Okay. No. So what was the order? Um, from memory, it was just that basically that the owners corporation were not unreasonable, and therefore they mm. were able to reject the bylaw. So he was trying to make that bylaw an order. And well, they said that's no. really interesting so, because then the installation is still there. There isn't an order yeah. requiring him to remove it. The fact is it remains unauthorised and yeah. illegal. And I suppose yeah. it's for the owners' corporation to take that next step and then yeah. apply for an order that he remove it. Remove it, yeah. So obviously I'm not sure what's happened in that respect because I don't no longer manage that scheme, but yeah. I'm sure that if they think that it's still necessary, they probably will take that step. Yep. Or they might just revel in this win for now. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) Excellent. That is a good news story. Thanks for that, Rena. Well, for my part, maybe not so much a win, but something that I enjoyed this week, I actually met with a committee for a small building in Sydney's eastern suburbs, a four-lot scheme, and they are quite excited about embarking on the collective sale process. So, yeah, that's the new system here in New South Wales that came in with our new act at the end of last year, where 75% of lot owners can approve the sale or the redevelopment of the entire building. So that's a big change from previously needing 100% of lot owners And the interesting thing about this scheme is that whilst it is a four-lot scheme, there are three owners who support this collective sale Mm -hmm. and one owner who we think probably won't be on board. So that fourth owner is not a member of the committee, so I didn't meet with that person, but the committee specifically wanted to meet to just chat about what this process is, how it works, what kind of meetings they have to have, what kind of plans they need to put together And they are actually working together with a real estate agent who has some developer contacts and a couple of developers who've looked at the building and are interested and think that there's some value there in a redevelopment. So they could well be one of the first to go ahead with this. And I know there are a few other buildings out there and lawyer colleagues of mine who are having the same discussions with buildings. And it'll be interesting to watch this space and see how they go. They're looking to sell it, like to basically redevelop the whole lot and and increase the number of apartments or keep it the same, Amanda? Well, the interesting thing is because of the part of Sydney that it's in, and I won't say the suburb just to keep the confidentiality, but it is a waterfront suburb and they are one of the few unit blocks in the street, uh, interestingly. It's actually Mm. uh, mostly houses, very large, very expensive houses, And they have had some interest from, I'm not sure if it's a developer or just a private purchaser, 
For somebody who would like to build a standalone home, quite a magnificent home, wow. uh, and they think that there would be in the order of multiple millions of dollars to gain doing that kind of redevelopment. So mm. I'm not sure that they'd get the higher density, but if they were to do a standalone, very high level dwelling, they seem to think there'd be some value in that for somebody. Yeah, because um, I mean, I live in the eastern suburbs also, and mm. where I live, I actually approached council about this, and because it's a, it's only a few apartment blocks, and there's about three or four in the whole street, and mm. now you can't actually have, you can't build apartments anymore. Yeah. So therefore, if we were to redevelop our apartment, it'd have to be only the same number of lots. You couldn't actually add any more lots. So yeah, interesting. That was yeah. So I think for some people, it just may be to become a home, or just or mm. perhaps more upmarket apartments like yeah. newer. And that is definitely one of the first steps that I have advised this building and that buildings thinking about this should do is to start talking to a valuer really early in the piece. At some point, you do have to have an independent valuation done. I'm talking about a different valuer who comes in at the beginning as your valuer, the building's valuer, who can let you know what the highest and best use of the property is and what kind mm. of money you might be looking at if you were to go to an auction and also taking into account the compensation value that you have to be paying to your lot owners, which is mm. generally more than, the, than just the market value. It has to take into account things like moving costs, they'll have to pay stamp duty on any new property, whether they have any unique circumstances like they run their business from their home, which would have to be taken into account. So you really need to start doing your numbers really early mm. in the piece and, of course, talking to the council about what might be possible because fair enough if you're not doing the redevelopment yourself, you're trying to attract developers, but it would help to be able to say, hey, we've done our homework, we've spoken to the council, and this is what we think are potential uses for this parcel and get those people interested to take it on for you. Mm, that sounds interesting. So, yeah, I'm interested to see how that goes along and yes. whether a house or another four-lot scheme is the way they choose to proceed. Yep, yep, definitely. I'll keep you posted on that. There's a few excited lawyers in Strata land looking at this new mm. part of the Strata Schemes Development Act and uh, we're all watching each other and talking to each other about how these matters are playing out. So very interesting. Okay. Well, anything else to add there, Rena, before we wrap up and say goodbye? No, thanks, Amanda. It's been wonderful and I'll see you soon. No worries. See you soon. Catch you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?